Our text today is taken from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. I doubt this comes as a surprise to anyone gathered here today, but there is no perfect marriage. Why? Because there are two people who sin daily in every human marriage since the fall of man. Dear ones, Eve before the fall was the only woman that could truly say she had a perfect husband. And likewise, Adam before the fall was the only man that could say he had a perfect wife. If we are to receive God's grace and help in our marriages, we must begin by humbly acknowledging that both Christian and non-Christian marriages have this one thing in common. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20 makes us abundantly clear when it says, For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Likewise, in the New Testament, in 1 John chapter 1, in verse 8, we read, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. What does, however, distinguish the Christian from the non-Christian marriage is that we Christians have been delivered from the guilt and penalty of our sin through the redemptive love of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have at our disposal the resurrection power of Jesus Christ abiding in us. For we have been united to Jesus Christ by faith. And we have the certain hope which comes from his unfailing promise that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. We are victors in Christ. We are not victims. We are victors in Jesus Christ. If we play the role of being a victim, we'll never know the glory of victory and overcoming sin in our life. We must move beyond 
being victims to becoming victors. Yes, as Christians, we have to battle similar kinds of problems as do non-Christians. Whether problems in our own lives, sins in our own lives, in the lives of our spouses, in the lives of our children. But dear ones, we have the solution and we have the remedy to all of those sins and all of those problems that can possibly occur in a marriage. We have the antidote to sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us neither slide into a sinful complacency about our marriages, believing that they are unsinkable, nor let us drift into a sinful despair, believing they are hopelessly doomed. For where sin did abound, grace did much more abound, according to Romans 5.20. God's sovereign and free grace, dear ones, swallows up the greatest and most heinous sins. God not only sanctifies Christians by his grace, he also sanctifies Christian marriages by that same free grace which he extends to all who will come to him in faith. It has been my great privilege, dear ones, and I'm sure you've seen it, whether in your own marriage or in the marriages of others as well, but I can say for sure it has personally been my great privilege to witness the mighty hand of God intervene in marriages even when it appeared that minds were already made up to seek a divorce. To see God step in and to do his mighty work. The following words not only speak of the miraculous conception of our Lord Jesus Christ, but I would submit they may be applied to our marriages as well. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Luke 1.37 And to that end, let us briefly focus our attention upon the divine institution of marriages found in the original charter the original charter of marriage here in Genesis 2, verse 24. We'll consider the following main points from our text. First of all, the preeminence of marriage. Second, the permanence of marriage. And third, the promise of marriage. First of all, then, the preeminence of marriage. Note from our text that God exalts marriage as preeminent among human relationships. In Genesis 2.24, we read, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. Genesis 2.24 begins with, in effect, a conclusion. The word therefore. 
So we have to ask, when we see a therefore, we always have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? We want to know the conclusion. What has he said previously to bring about this conclusion? Well, Genesis chapter 2 details for us the pinnacle of God's creation, namely man as male and female. In this chapter, the Lord describes in detail the forming of a man from the dust of the earth and is breathing into man the breath of life. The Lord prepared an actual paradise upon earth for this sinless and righteous man wherein he might live and work. Adam was given a very specific calling by God and work to perform in tilling the ground and in naming the various animals in this picture of heaven upon earth. And although under no obligation to do so, the Lord even graciously entered into a covenant of works with Adam and with all his posterity descending from him by ordinary generation. In this covenant, God promised that Adam and all his posterity would fall under the curse of sin and death if he did not perfectly obey God, perfectly obey God's good and holy commandments. But also by implication, God promised to Adam that all that Adam and all his posterity would enjoy the blessedness of life forevermore if he perfectly kept God's righteous law as written in his heart and received from the very mouth of God. Adam enjoyed direct and perfect fellowship with the Lord at that time. Uh, there was, at that time, no need for a mediator. He had a relationship directly with the Lord God. An amazing thing to consider. What did Adam lack at that time? You consider all that he had. What did he lack? Well, let's see. God says that he lacked something. Adam recognized that he lacked something as well. Even with all the perfect blessings enjoyed by Adam in such a paradise, the Lord saw that man was yet, in some sense, incomplete. For he did not have a helper and a companion that was meet or fit for him, according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. Dear ones, Eve was created for Adam in order to help and support him in his calling to subdue the earth to God by means of mutual help and companionship and by means of propagation of a holy seed to the glory of God. She was not created to be his mistress as if physical intimacy were the only interest he had in her. No, she was created to be his wife. Nor was she created to be his bond ser servant as if marriage is just another word for slavery or servitude. No, she was created to be his helper and companion for life. In fact, in Malachi 2.14, 
it says very clearly that a wife is a companion. A companion by way of covenant for the man. The order of creation, that is, Adam being created first and then Eve, certainly implies that God has made man the head of his wife and that he is lovingly to lead her and she is lovingly to submit to his leadership in the home. For God could have created them both at the same time, right? He didn't have to create one after the other. He could have created them simultaneously and from the same dust of the ground, which would have removed any such order in their creation. And so the order of creation is important. Designates who is the head of the home. However, I submit to you that if God had only desired to illustrate man's headship in the order of Adam and Eve's creation, that is Adam first and then Eve second, he could have taught that truth by creating Adam first from the dust of the ground and then afterwards creating Eve from the same dust of the ground. Why did God create Eve from the rib of Adam? As we read the account of Eve's creation in Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 22, which let us do at this time, Genesis 2, 21 and 22, where it says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And so the fact that God chose to create Eve from Adam's rib, we understand that the Lord herein emphasizes more from this text than simply and only the headship of a man over his wife. Because God made woman from the rib of Adam and not from the dust of the ground, God not only emphasized the headship of man by virtue of his prior existence, but also emphasized the mutual affection a husband and a wife are to have for one another. For she is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. She is, if you will, his flesh. And he is, if you will, her flesh. They are part of each other. And she was created from a part of Adam's body that is close to his heart. Not from his feet to be trodden upon as if she were an enemy, nor from his head to be a rival leader in the home, but from his side, from a rib that is close to his heart. 
now that we have seen what precedes Genesis 2.24, we can better understand the conclusion, the word therefore, drawn in that verse. Because God created the woman to be a helper and lifelong companion to the man. And because she was created from the very flesh of a man, which was nearest to his heart. And because God brought her to Adam and gave her away as the father of the bride in the Garden of Eden, in that first marriage, in order that Adam might love her and lead her, therefore, That's where the word therefore appears. Therefore, because of all of those things, therefore, the following truth must be maintained in marriage as God ordained it. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother. These words demonstrate, dear ones, the preeminence of marriage. Although the parent-child relationship is exceedingly strong and important, that relationship, I submit to you, is subordinate to the union of a husband and a wife. The first and primary relationship within a family is the lawful marriage of one man to one woman. Here is where I believe so many marriages go astray. Marriages so often are held together because of the children. And once the children leave home, there is nothing that yet remains in the marriage to keep the husband and the wife together. They put all their attention, focused everything upon the children, while they have grown further and further apart. And when the children leave, there's nothing left at all. That's why there are so many divorces. At that particular period of time, the children, statistically, it's the, the, the most likely time when divorces occur is when children leave the home. However, dear ones, I would have you note that the Lord did not create Adam and Eve and and their children all at the same time while in the Garden of Eden. He first created a man and a woman and he united them together in a marriage covenant. And then he commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. God says... Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. And of course, the same is likewise true for the woman. She must also leave her father and her mother. The leaving of Genesis 2.24 is not one in which a married couple renounce all ties to their parents and forsake them altogether, believing they are no longer bound to honor their parents, as the Pharisees basically were teaching when they said in Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 13, that there was no obligation on their part to assist and to help their parents. They took the money that they should have been using to help and support their parents when they became old 
and they said that it was Corbin, that it was devoted to the church, and they then could use it for either selfishly, simply to say it was devoted to the church, but simply to use it upon themselves, or actually give it to the church in some way instead of caring for their parents, as they should have done. God calls married children to love and respect and to care for their parents, especially when their parents reach an age where they can no longer care for themselves. That's our responsibility. And yes, to listen and to learn from the wisdom of our parents when it is agreeable to the word of God. Dear ones, it's not only Christian parents that have wisdom to share with their children. Non-Christian parents as well have wisdom to share with their parents. Their own experiences and what they have learned can be very, very valuable. And we must learn not to simply disregard what our parents tell us simply because they're non-Christians. We must learn to respect them as well. But we take what they say to the word of God as well. When it's agreeable to the word of God, we should listen to that advice and that counsel. Take it very seriously. The leaving here addressed in Genesis 2.24 is, in effect, a leaving to form a new family unit. No longer is this married couple under the direct rule of their parents, But now, through the covenant of marriage, they have assumed new responsibilities, one to another, which alter the relationship they once had with their parents. Therefore, after the marriage of their children, parents must not seek to control or to retain control of their children, either by manipulation of emotions or by threats, or by dangling carrots in front of the eyes of their children, or by tears. Parents should be willing to offer help, advice, and counsel, especially when it's requested, and also admonition and correction, even after their children leave home and are adults. They should be willing to admonish and correct where there is some sin that must be confronted. By means of reasonable moral persuasion and a godly example, parents should guide their children after their children are married. I submit to you, if there was an understanding of this one principle, that is the preeminence of marriage, much trouble would be averted by married children being too dependent upon parents rather than upon one another and parents being too intrusive in the lives of their married children. If that one principle, the preeminence of marriage, were understood and faithfully maintained and applied. Furthermore, this one principle would set straight and keep straight before the eyes 
of growing children within the home, that the relationship between dad and mom is foundational to the peace, love, and respect within the home. I'm not advocating a neglect of any duty we owe to our children here. But we must realize that we actually serve, help, and instruct our children the most when we invest the time necessary to have a loving and affectionate relationship between a husband and a wife and a mother and a father. The most significant teaching tool you'll ever use in preparing your children for marriage, not that there aren't other tools, but the most significant one I submit is your own example in your marriage. I had the privilege of witnessing the births of my last three children. They didn't allow fathers into the delivery rooms for my two oldest children, but for the last three, I was able to do that. And oh, and as the doctor took out his scissors and proceeded to cut the umbilical cord, and I had, I think, one of the last, I can't remember, but one of them anyway, I think I had the privilege of cutting the umbilical cord. But when that occurred, I didn't yell at the doctor and say, you can't do that. You can't cut that umbilical cord. I won't let you separate that child from his mother. Why? Because the child will not survive in the real world unless that cord is severed. And similarly, dear ones, a marriage will not survive if there is not a formal severing of the cord between the parent and child. Both parents and children must let go. For God says, leave. Leave. The second main point is the permanence of marriage. We also learn from the divine and original institution of marriage that there is to exist a permanent and lifelong bond between a husband and wife. Not only does God instruct us to leave, but he also teaches us to cleave, as we see in Genesis 2.24. And shall cleave unto his wife. Literally, literally in the Hebrew, he shall be glued with his wife. Glued together. You're not to view your marriage as though you were taped together or stapled together in some temporary fashion for the time being but rather that you are permanently glued to one another with the strongest glue known to man. The strongest glue known to man is a binding covenant made one to another in the presence of God and in the presence of human witnesses. That covenant is the strongest glue. 
that binds you together. Till death do us part are the words, if not explicitly stated, certainly implied that we each one pledge to our spouse on the day in which we were married. Till death do us part. We have promised before the everlasting God in the marriage covenant to be faithful to our spouse till the day that either we die or our spouse dies. Although God permits the dissolution of a marriage for adultery and for willful desertion that cannot be remedied, as taught by Christ in Matthew 19.9 and by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.15, no marriage must be entered with divorce as some kind of an escape hatch. We enter marriage with the words upon our lips and in our hearts till death do us part. Any other, any other view of marriage is a sacrilege, is a sacrilege of that which is holy, which has the imprint of God upon it, instituted by God and picturing the relationship that Christ has with his church. I submit that if you freely throw around the word divorce when you get into an argument with your spouse or use it when talking with your friends or your children, it will, over the process of time, become more and more of an acceptable alternative to you when you feel trapped in your marriage. You don't have to go out dear ones, and commit adultery in order to violate your marriage covenant. Simply utter in the heat and passion of an argument the fact that you are contemplating a divorce or want a divorce and you have attacked your husband or wife and the divine institution of marriage in a very, very direct way. Although no act was committed in uttering those words, the words that are uttered will sink deep into the heart of your spouse with an unbearable pain. Some spouses even use the word divorce as a form of manipulation or as a leverage to get what they want from their spouse. Dear ones, if you are guilty of such things, God says, stop it and stop it right now because it is sacrilege of the marriage covenant. It is wicked and violates what you promised in your marriage covenant before God who will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain. And should your children hear those painful and awful words in the course of an argument, I submit to you, fear will grip their poor hearts as nothing else will. What a sight to see 
and I have been in counseling situations to see the broken hearts of children who are unnecessarily exposed to the divorce of parents they love. They feel guilty, the children. They feel guilty. They feel responsible. They feel insecure. They feel unloved. They feel angry. Dear ones, watch how you use the word divorce. It is a powerful word that will have serious and grave consequences in your lives and in the lives of your children. The more you use it, the more it will become, I submit to you, a reality in your life. However, listen to the words of the Lord. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave, shall be glued unto his wife. And for the wife shall be glued to her husband. The third and final point, the promise of marriage. When the Lord states in Genesis 2.24, and they shall be one flesh. We are not only to understand this language as signifying the intimate relationship that lawfully exists within marriage. For I would submit that a husband and wife become one flesh even before physical intimacy occurs. It is because they are one flesh by way of covenant that they demonstrate this in their physical union. The physical union is a picture of what has already occurred in covenantal union. That is why the Lord forbids this physical union with a harlot in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 15 and 16 because there is no covenant to be one flesh in such a physical union. So there should be, therefore, no physical union. We find this marriage covenant explicitly mentioned in Malachi 2.14. Malachi chapter 2, verse 14 says this. Yet ye say, wherefore... That is, how, we, how have we shown and demonstrated sacrilege in, uh, in bringing our offerings to thee, O God? This is the question that is being asked. How have we committed the sacrilege? And here's the answer. Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. The wife of thy covenant. 
The marriage covenant is a mutual promise made on the part of a man and a woman before God and witnesses to be united in the bond of marriage until death should part them. This promise is for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. There are two sinful extremes that must be avoided in the discussion of this marriage covenant. The first sinful extreme to be avoided is that the civil magistrate has the right to alter or change the law of God so as to establish no-fault divorces or same-sex unions or incestuous unions as lawful marriages. That's a sinful extreme. The civil magistrate does not possess any such authority. God is the one who instituted marriage. It is God's law that must govern marriage. The civil magistrate, dear ones, is obligated to uphold only those grounds given by God in marriage, in divorce, and in remarriage. The second extreme to be avoided is that marriage is a sacrament, a sacrament as taught by the Roman Catholic Church. Marriage is ordained by God. Marriage is blessed by Christ. It is witnessed to by the Lord, but it cannot be a sacrament for all people, whether Christian or non-Christian, may marry, whereas only members of the visible church may receive the sacraments. The covenant in marriage is made between a man and a woman in the presence of God and not between a couple and God. A promise made between two people in the presence of God, but not two people as one making a promise or a covenant or a vow directly to God. God is the one who witnesses the covenant. He witnesses the covenant in the marriage However, if God were the one with whom the covenant was made, that covenant could never be lawfully broken. For our unfaithfulness does not make void covenants made with God. Our unfaithfulness does not make empty and void and unlawful covenants that are made directly with God. That's why the solemn league and covenant That's why baptismal covenants, that's why those covenants made directly with God continue to be binding because our unfaithfulness does not make a covenant made with God unfaithful or unlawful. He will keep his covenant. However, in human covenants, commercial covenants, Marriage covenants, civil covenants of various kinds, if if one party is unfaithful, God does allow those covenants for certain grounds that he states and stipulates in his word to be broken, to be dissolved, but not a covenant that is made with him. If you employ somebody to do work for you 
and you say you'll pay that person so much money for the work that he does, but he doesn't fulfill his part of the covenant, are you still obligated to pay him the money that you had covenanted to give to him? Of course not. That's the nature of human covenants, but it's not the nature of a divine covenant. God will hold us to the covenants made with him. And so, marriage is not a sacrament. In fact, we find in Hebrews 13.4, marriage is honorable in all. It's not just for Christians. Marriage is honorable in all and among all people. Thus, when your marriage, dear ones, is under attack, remember, remember the binding covenant you have made with your husband or wife in the presence of God and witnesses. If you still have your wedding covenant, the promises that you made to one another, I encourage you, go over that covenant and renew it in your own heart again in the presence of God. And even if you don't have it, you know that you did promise to be faithful to him or her for the rest of your life. That's what you promised. You may even choose to use your wedding anniversary as a time to renew your covenant promises to one another. Just the two of you. It doesn't have to be some formal ceremony, but just to use that time to renew your covenant promises to one another in the presence of the Lord. Covenants are meant, dear ones, to be periodically renewed. Covenants are meant to be renewed whether in one's own heart or together. In the various sections of the Bible where husbands and wives are directly addressed, thinking of Ephesians 5, Colossians chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, please, please, please read these sections over and carefully note that God does not address the rights of husbands and wives, but rather the duties of husbands and wives. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Ephesians 5.22 Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Ephesians 5 verse 25 Husbands and wives are told by the inspired writers what they are to give, not what they are to claim. What they are to do by way of their own obedience and not what they are to demand of the other in marriage. The Lord speaking through the apostles here does not say to the husbands, your wives ought to be in subjection to you. No, he says to the wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Nor do the, do the apostles say to the wives, your husbands owe you love and honor because you are the weaker vessel. Now go and get it from them. Rather, he says to the wives, or to the husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. As Christ loved the church. 
Instead, both Paul and Peter command husbands and wives to think of their own duties. Their own duties. And dear ones, this is such a prevalent sin on all of our behalfs. In every relationship, not just in the marriage, we think more of the duties of others and what they owe us than we think of our own duties and what we owe others. And that's our sin. That we begin with the duties of others rather than with our own duties. How well God knows us. We are so prone to look at what our husband or wife is not doing while spending very little time looking at what we are not doing. Dear ones, a marriage is always in serious trouble when the focus is more upon our rights than upon our duties to one another. Where would we be if Christ had clung to his rights as the Son of God rather than to his duties as found in the covenant of redemption? To lay down his life for his people. We would be eternally condemned to hell. Remember, it is such duties that you promised, you promised on your wedding day to one another in your marriage covenant in the presence of Almighty God before whom you will stand on that final day of judgment to give an account. I conclude by pointing out that the greatest motivation, I believe, given by God for the sanctifying of our marriages is that it is a picture of our union with Jesus Christ, as taught in Ephesians 5.32. What is the picture of Christ and his church that we are reflecting to our children and to others by our marriage? Men are our children learning about the love of Christ for his bride, his willingness to sacrifice all to save her, his blessing her with all spiritual benefits and his loving leadership through our own instruction and example. Ladies, are your children learning about the love and submission of the church to Jesus Christ as they observe your respect and desire to obey your husband and, and all that is agreeable to the word of God and your desire to be a faithful companion and helper to him. The covenant of grace wherein we are united to Jesus Christ is likened, is likened in scripture to a marriage covenant. Jesus Christ has redeemed us from our adulterous relationship with other gods, with other lovers, by giving his life in exchange for ours. He has wooed us to himself by his spirit. We have been betrothed to him by covenant. He has gone to prepare a home for us. In heaven, and one day he'll return to gather us to himself that we may be with him forever. 
Dear ones, let us not distort that beautiful and that marvelous picture of Christ and his church by our willful rebellion against the covenant of marriage. Let us rather seek Christ and his grace that we might grow in ever greater conformity to that heavenly marriage into which he has brought us. Amen. Let us stand together in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.